Chapter 6 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Fall of Fort Ticonderoga. On the very day when Congress had assembled in Philadelphia, just a few hours before the time of the meeting, another event occurred away up on the shores of the beautiful lake that lies in what in the early times was the thoroughfare between Montreal and Albany and New York. The shores of Lake Champlain and Lake George had afforded some of the bloodiest of battlegrounds in the French and Indian War. It was by this route that Frontenac had sent the band of Indians and Frenchmen, who had planned to go to Albany, but had turned aside and massacred the innocent people of Schenectady. At that time on the border of the settlements in New York, some of the strangest of traditions and the most stirring of stories had come down from the earliest settlers of the brave deeds of white men and red in this region, where now the summer tourists go in great numbers and see only a beautiful lake, dotted with fairy-tale-like islands and framed by towering mountains that make one of the most beautiful spots in America. It was in 1755 that the French had built a fort on the high bluff which looks out over the surrounding country, and guards the narrow passageway between the two lakes. To this fort they had given the Indian name Chionderoga, which means the sounding waters, but this name came after the close of the war to be known as Ticonderoga. Here, in the summer of 1758, the English general Abercrombie had been defeated by the French and Indians when he tried to capture the fort, and after a desperate struggle, in which his regulars and colonial forces had fought, as only the men of the Anglo-Saxon race can fight, he had lost almost 2,000 men. About a year afterward, General Amherst, with an army of 11,000 men, had determined to retake the fort, and take it again he did, for he was wise enough not to try to storm it, but decided to lay siege to it and compel the garrison to surrender. Hunger will sometimes do more than powder and ball, and after a brief time the discouraged Frenchman dismantled Fort Ticonderoga, and abandoning it, fled to Crown Point. So Amherst secured for the English, without a gun having been fired, what Abercrombie had failed to take after a fearful struggle. Fort Ticonderoga, or Fort Ty as it was commonly known in the year 1775, was still in the hands of the English. Captain Delaplace, with a little garrison of 48 men, was in charge of it, and never a thought of fear or of trouble seemed to have entered their minds. I have no doubt the captain and his pretty young wife, who was with him in the beautiful and lonely spot, often bewail the fact that they were stationed in such a remote post, and heartily wish that they were somewhere else, wherein they are not entirely unlike some men and women, who still believe that if they were in other places than those in which they find themselves, they could be much happier. However, both Captain Delaplace and his beautiful wife were speedily to learn that even old Fort Ty was not to be without an excitement of its own and the manner in which it came to pass was as follows. When Benedict Arnold had arrived at Cambridge, where the hardy little army of the colony was assembled, as we know, he had at once suggested that he, with a suitable force, should be sent to capture Fort Ticonderoga. The location of the fort, its supplies, and the quantity of ammunition stored there, and the help it would be if it was decided to invade Canada, were all matters to be considered. Perhaps Arnold was already thinking of entering Canada, but whether he was or not, he was a man of such tremendous energy that he had to be doing something. 
The result of his pleadings was that the Massachusetts Congress gave to Benedict Arnold a colonel's commission and authorized him to raise 400 men in western Massachusetts and take command of them and capture the old fort if he thought he could do so. In high spirits, Arnold set forth, for he had never a misgiving in the matter. But he soon learned that the plan had been thought of by others also. Ethan Allen, the leader of the Green Mountain Boys, which was a brand of Vermont men who had associated themselves to resist the demands of New York, which claimed a good part of Vermont as its own, had already been authorized by Connecticut to undertake this very task of capturing Fort Ticonderoga. The Massachusetts Congress had supplied Arnold with some money and horses and ammunition, but as soon as he heard of Ethan Allen's march, he at once gave up trying to enlist men and hastened forward to join the band that was advancing on the fort. Benedict Arnold was a bold and very determined man, but so was Ethan Allen. The latter was a soldier of great bravery. He had a very strong and vigorous body, was almost always successful in the rough wrestling matches and rough and tumbles of the camps, and his followers were very proud of him as well as devoted to him personally. Allen also prided himself upon his being a thinker and writer, and had even written a book or pamphlet. Certain it was that both these men could not at the same time be leaders of the expedition. Arnold very soon learned that Allen's men would listen to no other than their own doughty commander. So, making a virtue of necessity, he pushed forward with the band, apparently content to be one of its members if he could not be the commander. In the night of May 9th, the entire force arrived at the shore of the lake opposite Ticonderoga. Ethan Allen at once applied to a farmer he knew there for a guide, and the farmer's own boy, Nathan Beeman, who knew the lake and the fort too, for he had been in it many a time, became the guide. Only a few boats could be found, however, and these were put to good use at once. But with all their efforts, when the gray of the dawn of the morning of May 10th appeared, only Allen and Arnold and 83 men had been landed. Ethan Allen was not easily disheartened, and so assembling his few followers, he harangued them after a manner we can easily imagine, and then silently in three ranks they all started for the fort. The first sentinel they met snapped his fusee at the bold leader, but it misfired and the man was at once seized. The next sentinel made a thrust at one of the leaders with his bayonet, but Allen struck him on the head with his sword, and he too ceased to trouble the advancing band. As soon as the men had entered the fort, they gave such a united shout as only the men of that time knew how to give, and hastily formed in line in front of the barracks, from which the startled soldiers rushed forth, only to find themselves prisoners. Instantly Ethan Allen, having young Nathan Beeman to show him the way, rushed up the steps of the door to the quarters of Captain de Laplace. Stopping before it, Ethan Allen grasped his sword, and with the hilt of it rapped three times, and at the same time, in his loudest tones, summoned the captain to come forth and give himself up. We do not know what the captain's dreams had been, but only partly awake and partly dressed he opened the door, while from behind him could be seen peering the frightened face of his young wife, who was as alarmed as her husband was angry at the rude and startling summons. As soon as Captain de Laplace beheld Allen, he at once recognized him. Most of the people of that region were acquainted with the bold and reckless leader of the Green Mountain Boys, and angrily demanded what he meant by creating such a disturbance at such an unseemly hour. Ethan Allen pointed with his sword at his followers and said, I order you to instantly surrender. By what authority do you demand it? In the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress, thundered Ethan Allen in reply. Perhaps Captain de Laplace did not even know there was such a body as the, quote, Continental Congress, unquote. But there was no mistaking the man before him, and so the fort was quickly given over, and the garrison with the women and children were sent to Hartford. 
It was in this way that for the second time Ticonderoga was surrendered without a gun having been fired. With the fall of the fort, 120 pieces of cannon, 50 swivels, two 10-inch mortars, one howitzer, one cohorn, 10 tons of musket balls, and three cartloads of flints, some new carriages, and a large quantity of material for boat building, as well as a goodly store of provisions and powder, fell into the hands of the bold captors. In the morning, the men who had not been able to cross the lake in the night joined their comrades in the fort, and soon after, on the 12th of May, Crown Point was also easily taken. Arnold tried to assume the command of Ticonderoga as soon as the fort was surrendered, but his claims were either laughed at or ignored. The men declared that it was Connecticut, and not Massachusetts, that was paying them for this work, and only to the leader they had followed would they listen. Arnold had only a few men, but he was determined to do something anyway, and so when, a few days later, a few more of his own men joined him, he started down Lake Champlain and captured St. John's, and its garrison, and also a sloop of war that was lying at anchor there. These startling events greatly elated some of the men of the colonies, almost staggered others, and some were evidently badly frightened by them. They declared that England would be very angry when she heard such news, and that the punishment she would visit on the colonies would be such as they would long remember, and indeed it did seem so. Great Britain was so powerful, and the colonies were so feeble, and worse than all, apparently were so far from being united, as the clash between Benedict Arnold, appointed by Massachusetts, and Ethan Allen, appointed by Connecticut, has already shown us, that it did seem as if the alarm was well grounded. How well grounded it was, we shall learn as we enter further into the story of the struggle. When the Congress at Philadelphia heard of what Ethan Allen had done, the delegates, that is, some of them, were greatly alarmed. This was going altogether too far, the timid ones declared. This was rebellion and open war, and that was not what they were aiming at. They wanted their rights, but had no thought of making war upon the mother country. At last, in spite of the words of the bolder members, Congress recommended to the committees at New York and Albany that the cannon and stores taken by Ethan Allen and his men should be removed to the south end of Lake George, and that a strong post should be erected there. They also advised that a careful inventory of the stores should be made, quote, in order that they might safely be returned when the restoration of harmony between Great Britain and the colonies, so earnestly desired by the latter, shall render it prudent and consistent with the overruling law of self-preservation, unquote. In spite of the stilted and high-flown words, some could not conceal their alarm, while others were as openly rejoiced at the turn of events. And meanwhile, the strength of the colonies was being tested and developed after a manner that was as surprising to the friends as it was to the enemies of the rebel cause. End of chapter 6